The sermon text reading is from John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, Cana, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "We have, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the joys I get as pastor is I get to conduct weddings. And as I look around this room, I I can see couples that have actually had the opportunity to officiate your wedding. Uh, But some are more memorable than others. I actually had the opportunity to do one years ago with a couple that we had done some ministry work with. And they since gotten or wanted to get married. And so they're living up in the New York area. And so invited me to come up to Long Island, New York. And the place that we're staying at was about 30 minutes away from actually where the church was, where they're getting married. And we didn't have any transportation. They said, just fly up. We'll take care of you once you're here. And so some friends of the family getting married, uh, they say, hey, we'll pick you up. And so it was a five o'clock wedding. And, and so it's like four o'clock, 4.15. And I'm starting to get nervous because they should have already picked me up by now. I call them. They're like, oh, no, no, hold on. You know, we're on our way. We're on our way. Well, what they didn't tell me was they were nowhere remotely close to the hotel. And, and so for whatever reason, they didn't want to tell me the truth. And so uh, it's now 4.30, and, and they're nowhere to be seen. So I'm like, babe, executive decision here. I'm going to call a taxi. I don't know when these people are going to show up. And so by the time the taxi got there, okay, and it's now like 4.45, 4.50, and I know we're going to be late, and then we're in traffic, it turns out, in New York after all. And... So, 5 o'clock wedding. Now, by the way, I should have told you this. It was the largest wedding I've ever conducted. There were more than 600 people in that sanctuary. The place was packed to the gills. And, and so, I waltz in. The, the bride is in the limo waiting because she, she can't enter until I'm there, right? And so, she's in the parking lot waiting. It's now about 5.40, 5.45. And so, for me, it was the walk of shame. I walk down the aisle to the front, and it's like it's 600 people. This is a big deal. It's a very formal wedding. There are multiple pastors. I'm doing the homily, but there are multiple other pastors. And so we're all up in these throne-like chairs up on, on the podium in this massive church. And they're, needless to say, they're not happy, right? And, and the reason why is because what? We know this, and for those of you who have been married, you know this. Weddings are big deals, and you want everything to go right, especially having the efficient show up on time, right? And, and so I love this passage because 
Because as we end this series, I wanted to specifically end with this one. And let me tell you why. John tells us in verse 11 that it is a sign what Jesus does, turning the water to wine. The sign is what? It's always pointing to something bigger. In Cana, what was it? Cana didn't even have a flashing red light. It was such a small town. They didn't have anything. And yet in this little podunk village, at this little podunk wedding, the biggest thing on earth takes place. Signs always point to something bigger than themselves. And this little wedding points to a much bigger wedding, as we're going to see, and to a much bigger issue. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. This passage is about transformation. It's about more than a lot more than just water being transformed into wine. It's about the transformation of the whole world, the cosmos itself, as we're going to see. Now, I'm going to surprise you a little bit here this morning, and here's the first surprise. I have no points for you in this sermon. I know some of you have been here since we started. You're saying, I've never heard this before. You already had one, two, and three on the notes section. You're going to have to scribble through that now. Stay with me. We're going to get through this together. But the reason why is because as I was working this week, and I'm really, inve- you know, I'm, I'm, I feel invested in the story. And as I'm working through it, I realize it's not really about points this morning. I want to walk with you in the, the really the, the dust of Jesus here at this wedding. I want you to walk with me. And as, we, as I take you through the wedding scene, I, I think you're going to see what I saw. The, the big transformation, the big surprise. Let's start here with verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I just said that weddings were a big deal, and to us, they were an even bigger deal in the ancient world. And, you know, it's funny is uh, that even in some cultures today, we see just how big it is. I mean, by the way, I, you know, weddings in Georgia, I, you can learn this stuff. Weddings in Georgia are $31,000 on average. Did you know that? $31,000. By the way, the cheapest place in America to get married, Idaho, $19,000. And as the father of three girls, I'm looking at jobs in Idaho right now, okay? It looks really intriguing to move to Idaho for the money savings. But, I mean, they were, but, I mean, can you imagine? But here's the thing. The average wedding in the ancient world lasted seven days, Okay. We Our weddings, they're fast. I know some of you are like, man, I can't wait to get through this wedding. It's been here for three, four hours. I'm telling you, imagine seven days. Imagine the cost involved for that, right? In fact, Kirsten told me that when she lived in Japan, some of you know that she lived there for three years, and that, uh, that she would travel through Southeast Asia, and she one time was traveling, and she was in Indonesia, in Jakarta, in the capital, and she, was, uh, she didn't know where she was going to go. If she was here, she'd, she'd be, in fact, I told her I was going to tell the story, and she's like, I can't believe you're going to tell him this part. But she's a single woman in her 20s, and she didn't know anyone, and she's actually feeling sick. And so she's in the airport flying to Sumatra. Why to Sumatra, another island in Indonesia? Just because it sounded cool, she said. She, didn't know, she had no plans. She didn't know what she was going to do when she landed. That's my wife for you. And so she's in the airport waiting on the flight, and she meets a man from Sumatra who's a pharmacist. sees that she's sick and says, can I help you? She says, yeah, here's what's going on. And says, well, I'm actually going back to a, a village wedding. Um, you're going to Sumatra. You want to go with me? And she says, yes. And she says, today I would never let my daughters do what I did. But she goes with a complete stranger, gets off the plane with him, and goes to his village, and the wedding lasts for days, she said. 
and they put her up and they treat her like a queen. I mean, so even as we look at this passage, even in some cultures today, they still have such an honor around weddings and it's such a big deal. It's the event of the year, friends. And Jesus is invited. Jesus is invited to this wedding and and his, his disciples probably weren't really invited, but they had to be there because Jesus was the honored guest. And so they're kind of tagging along with him here. But, you know, and this is not the focus of where I'm going with the sermon this morning, but I want you to note something else here, because we can so easily miss this. Jesus loves parties, okay? Jesus is not this, this ascetic monk who hangs out in caves up in the mountains. Jesus is an invited guest, and when he goes to a party, he turns into a bigger party, okay? I don't want you to miss that this morning, because that's huge, I think. Right? Jesus loves parties. In fact, later on, he gets criticized. They, they say that he's like a drunkard or a glutton of parties. He's so enmeshed in the party scene, so to speak. I think we can learn some things from Jesus about that. How do you practice holiness, but also practice a party life? And Jesus somehow does it, right? And, he, and I want you to see what he does here. This is the good stuff. It begins in verse 3. It's the tension of the story begins. Listen. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We don't know what day of the party it is or the wedding feast. But, the, but when Jesus is there, it runs out. And basically, mom says, son, I know you're different. You're special. And so I wonder, can you do something about this problem? Now, this is an honor and shame culture. And for them to run out of wine, you have no idea. I mean, you may have been worried at your own wedding about how much wine will it last through three or four hours. But I'm telling you, in an honor and shame culture, to run out of wine would have been a black mark on your family. They would have talked in the village for years to come about this. And so this is what this family is faced with. And Jesus is there right at this moment, and, and mom is aware of what's going on. She's related somehow. And so mom is saying, hey, son, I, I know that you have powers here. Can you do something about this? And well, how does Jesus respond? He responds in a way that I would never allow my children to respond to their mother. Woman, can you imagine? Woman, now we have to be careful here. Um, it's a joke, but we have to be careful. Because it's easy to import our 21st century understanding in our context into the ancient world it was he wasn't being rude okay in in that context he wasn't being rude but what he was doing was what i call polite social distancing he was distancing himself from his mother why mom says can you help and he's distancing himself why it's because of verse four my hour now what does that mean my hour let me read to you three other verses elsewhere in john john chapter 12 and 13 right before Jesus goes to the cross, hours away. Listen to verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them the end. Don't you see? Jesus was thinking about his death at the wedding. Why is that important? Jesus was thinking about his own wedding. 
No, Jesus was single, Scott. Yes, but he was thinking about his wedding. You see, in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his bride. And he was the bridegroom. In fact, there's a whole book, Hosea. It's all about God as the intimate lover. He doesn't want distance from his children. In this case, actually, his bride, he calls. He says, I want to be, have an intimate love relationship with you, the bride. And what's interesting is in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are feasting. And some other disciples and some other rabbis come up and they say, why do you, why do you always eat and drink? Why don't you fast? The way that the rest of us do. And you remember how Jesus responds? Why would you fast right now when the bridegroom is with you? Jesus is intimately connecting himself saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the groom who's awaiting his bride. And when you go to a wedding, when was the last time you went to a wedding and you fasted? No, you feast, not fast. And Jesus is saying, I am the feast, friends. What was he thinking about? His wedding. And how would he enact the wedding? What happens next? This is the sign. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I want to show you a picture of some excavated jars. These would have been the same types of jars that would have been seen in that household. And you can see these are, these are massive. These are, they're made of stone, by the way. They're not light, okay? It would have taken multiple servants to lift them up. And they hold 20 or 30 gallons each. And so we're not talking about a usage for, for household usage, okay? We're not talking, and John tells us, for purification. What would you have done with jars this big? And the answer is this next picture here. It's called a mikvah. And a mikvah is a, is a purification bath. And so before you would enter the temple in Jerusalem or perhaps into a synagogue in Cana or elsewhere, there would be a mikvah, and even some homes had these. And, and these are ritual baths. And now remember, John tells us what this is all about, purification. And so, so if you are a follower of God and you know that God is holy and that you're unholy and you're full of an impurity, sin, and so the ritual and the ceremony in the Old Testament was that, that you would you would ritually cleanse yourself before you would go into the presence of God. Mikvah. And so it would be these, these stone jars that would be used to fill that up, you see. Now the reason why they're stone, why that was so important, is that stone in the ancient culture was impervious to impurities. Not clay or earthenware vessels. Instead you used stone. And the whole temple was made of stone, by the way, as a symbol of the imperviousness of God to sin. And so these purification vessels were used for, for such a time as that to fill the mikvah up here. And so remember what verse 11 says. John says this was a sign. Sign points to something bigger. What is Jesus doing? Why does he choose for the purpose of filling up cups in a wedding a purification vessel? You can see the sign, can't you? You can see where this is pointing, can't you? Cana is pointing to a bigger wedding feast. And you know what was fascinating to me? 
John is efficient with his language. John always is careful with his language. And so when he gives you a detail, you pay attention to it. And what's interesting is there were six stone jars. What's the number of perfection in the Bible? What's the number? Seven, right? What does seven stand for? Completion, perfection. There are six stone water jars for purification. Don't you see? Jesus was the seventh one. And on a much bigger wedding, he would pour himself out for the purification of his people for the world. The sign pointing to something bigger than itself. Cana pointing to Jerusalem and beyond. What did Jesus say on the night that he was betrayed in the garden? Do you remember? He said, Lord, take this cup from me. Yet, Lord, not my will, but yours. And now that the water to the wine was being poured into the cups of the assembled guests at the wedding in Cana, but don't you see, he drank the cup. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I receive the cup of wine that gladdens the heart with joy. It is profound, this passage, and what it points to. Which leads to what I want you to see next here. I want you to see the outcome of what Jesus does here by by the purification of God's people, much bigger than just the the imperviousness of the stone here, but for the the, the perfection of God's people, their purity, declaring them free from sin. Look at verses 8 through 10. Look at the outcome at this wedding here. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Master being the MC, by the way. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I want you to see a couple things here. One, very practically here, again, honor and shame culture. He rescues a family from shame. And again, sign, point to a bigger rescue from shame, the shame of sin, right? Romans 8, 1, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been rescued from shame. But here, practically speaking, at this local wedding, what happens here? It isn't just that Jesus says, all right, how about some more wine here? But what kind of wine? The best wine. See, here's what happened in the ancient world. In the ancient world, and we saw it right there, this is what the Master of the Feast says. In the ancient world, what you do is, is you serve the best wine first. Now, the reason why is actually for reasons why you and I would understand today. Kirsten and I went to uh, Greece, as you heard Mike mentioned last week. We were in there for our anniversary. It should have been our 20-year anniversary almost two years ago, and COVID had other plans for us. But we're like, hey, we're doing this, we're going, and we did. It was great timing, and we had an amazing time. The very first meal that we had, we put our bags down in the hotel in Athens, and we walked down the street to a, a local restaurant. And, and so I ordered moussaka. Now, if you've never had moussaka, I see some smiles around here. It's amazing. It looks like shepherd's pie. And there's either minced beef or lamb in there. For me, it was lamb, and, and uh, there's nutmeg and all these different spices, right? And, and some eggplant and some cheese. And I took that first bite, and I'm here to tell you it was a party in my mouth. Okay, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, everything was fresh. I mean, everything we ate for two weeks was fresh. But this, and let me tell you, was the 20th bite the same as the first one? No. 
You know why? And we know this from, from science now. Because what happens is endorphins are released when you have something for the very first time and it's like a part in your mouth. And so a chemical is released to your brain saying, release the endorphins, release the kraken now. I mean, release them. This is a fun time that we're having. And so your brain experiences happiness, endorphins. That's what you're experiencing, right? And, and, so, and so we're experiencing this. And, but here's the thing. They begin to numb, though, after a while. Like, you, your brain can't handle the overload of endorphins. And so, actually, your brain brings it down a little bit. That's what happens. Now, think about the wine for a second. He wasn't necessarily just talking about inebriation. Because the scriptures never celebrate drunkenness. Quite the opposite, actually. But listen to what it says in Psalm 104.15. Listen to 14 to 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The gladden there, what is that? Well, we would say from science, that's the endorphins being released. Wine, what does it do? When you ferment a grape, right, you create alcohol. It releases endorphins. It's why when you have a glass of wine at dinner, you feel relaxed, right? It's when you go to a party and, and you, you take a libation and, and uh, you know, like there's a, like a certain amount, there's a, in moderation, it brings a glad, it brings a joy to the heart. That's what the scriptures are saying. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I'm bringing joy in abundance. He didn't just provide enough to get through. He provided hundreds of gallons of wine. Abundance. Gift. We have such a generous God. And, and, and beyond just delivering from shame here, I mean, he is in the business of joy. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about that. Dance and game are frivolous and important here, for down here is not their natural place. Here they are a moment's rest from the life we are placed here to live. But in this world, everything is placed upside down. That which, if it could be prolonged here, would be truancy is likest that which is a better country, excuse me, in a better country is the end of ends. Joy, wait for it, is the serious business of heaven do you see what he's saying there lewis is saying we we dance we drink we make merriment and it's a temporary lull it's a temporary escape from covid19 it's a temporary escape from the anger of social media it's a temporary fill in the blank here and what we end up doing unfortunately is we end up abusing these things and we become slaves to those things but what is lewis saying lewis is saying when you properly understand what God has given us in the dance, in the drink, it's a sign, you see. And one day, God's going to flip the script. And, and rather than being an escape, so to speak, it's what we're made for. And there will not be a governor, a regulator on, on the endorphins. That's, that, that's temporary because we can't handle it. But there's coming a day friends, when we're going to experience a release of endorphins in our bodies, we're going to experience a release of joy that will be never-ending, and it's called eternity. It's called eternity with God. And I, you know, I try to wrap my head sometimes around, what is eternity? What does it mean to be timeless in that sense, where there is no, there's only an extended amount of joy that keeps going and going, and sometimes I just find myself saying, I think I want the party to end at some point, right? I'm an introvert after all, but, but no, there is no end of the party. 
There's no end. And, and your, your whole body, your whole self, mind, spirit, and will 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 it forward. You will long for it. You will taste and see how good the Lord is. And Lewis is on to something there. And what Jesus is doing at this wedding is a massive sign pointing not just to his crucifixion, but beyond to all of eternity. That's what I want you to see. That's how big this passage is. That's how surprising it is. That's how transformative this is. And what I hear, what I hear him doing here, he said, I'm going to provide the wine for the wedding, and it's never going to run out. Think about that for a second. Our best gifts, the wine, and I've had some really good wines. Compliments of one of you here, and I won't name who you are, but man, you've, thank you. Uh, it's uh, about a 40-year-old Bordeaux. Um, but oh my gosh, I mean, I can't, I mean, imagine life like that every day, right? And what, is, what does Jesus do? Here, what's so fascinating to me is that the master of the ceremony says, basically, my language, not his, you've reversed the scientific process here. Normally, the taste buds should dull. But this wine was so phenomenal that it overwhelmed and overcame the normal natural order of things. That's the wine of God. That's the wine of joy. That's your life to come. Does that get you excited? Amen? It should. Should. Um, I want to show you another picture. This is over my anniversary. This is a place called Santorini. And uh, this, for four days, four nights, I mean, four nights, we would watch the sunset. Santorini is a volcanic island that 3,500 years ago blew its top. And it sank into the sea. And it left this rim of volcano. You can only see about a mile, two, three miles of it. It's about 10 miles in circumference if you saw the whole thing. And every night, people would gather. There's this old castle and towards the very tip there in the picture. There's this old castle. And it's hard to see the people. But people would gather there every night. And I, I, we, I would see something I've never seen before. Not the sunset. I've seen that before. It would be people clapping. Have you ever been to a place where people clap for a sunset? Santorini. The town called Ia, where we stayed. And we stayed right on the rim. I mean, that was our view from our room. Right or similar, but different, but we're every night, and people would clap for the sunset. But I want to, I want you to hear something. I mean this. I told someone this last week. As amazing as that was, I came here Sunday morning. I sat there because I have a rare opportunity to hear someone else preach, and Mike was preaching. And as soon as he started preaching God's word, I felt deeply satisfied in a way that the sunsets of Ea can never be. I mean that. It deeply satisfied my heart to hear the word of God preached. To hear the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God preached. And on the way home, I was listening to a, or watching a documentary on Anthony Bourdain. Some of you know that name. Anthony Bourdain was a remarkable writer. Uh, turns out, in addition to being a remarkable chef in a French restaurant in New York City, and became famous as a result. And, and so he spent the last 15, 20 years of his life, traveling around the world, he saw the sunsets of Ea. He ate Mosaka. And he, and he saw things and he ate things that I will never 
in my lifetime I've had the opportunity to do, but he did it. And two years ago, he committed suicide. And the documentary was about trying to make sense of this man who had the opportunity to travel the world and experience the best that the world had to offer, and yet he ended his life by his own hand. Why? And the answer is, it's this passage. It's that our wine is always secondary. And if we place our trust and our hopes and our lives in those things, we will find out that it will run out. We will run dry. Jesus is the best wine, friends. He is the good wine. And it's what we have been made for. The sunsets of Ea, the, the best foods and drinks you had pale in comparison to the Word of God being preached right now. When the Word of God was being read by Reed earlier and preached and every Sunday and every church that is faithful around this globe as we speak is better than the best that this world has to offer. Here's where I want to close. We were made for transformation. And in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is that echoing? It's Genesis. It's creation. And what John is saying is, with Jesus, new creation has come. And in John chapter 2, what's the very first miracle, what's the very first sign, is transformation. It's new creation life. And what is it pointing to? It's pointing to joy. And, I, and, what I, and I, I'm saying that because because. Our trajectory of our lives is now for eternity. It means that now we celebrate the eternity today. It means that we celebrate joy. And I was joking with someone before the service that, that if, I, if I wasn't Presbyterian, I would probably be Anglican. That's not the joke. But, but I would probably be Anglican. And one of the things I love about the Anglican tradition is they come up with these amazing names for churches. And, and so, man, I, I think that at this point, if I was Anglican, I'd call it the Church of the Good Wine. I mean, I just love that. Right? It's what the MC says at the very end, the, the good wine at the end, the best wine, right? Church of the good wine. This is why I chose this to end our series DNA for our church community, because I want us to be the church of the good wine. I want us to be the church in the midst of politics, midst of, of anger out there that is constant on our social media feeds, in the midst of, of a pandemic that just won't quite end and quite uh, go away it's becoming endemic at best and and I, in the midst of all the all the hazards of life and the problems in your marriage and in your career in your bodies with disease in the midst of all that i want us to be the church of the good one because our city needs that story it needs that narrative we need to be that church the church of the good wine the church of joy and the reason why i had us read the amos 9 passage earlier it's because I want you to set up at the very end here. I want you to hear verses 13 and 14 again. In the midst of your events of life right now, listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. Him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip of sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Abundance. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant the vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In Revelation 21, the final word on that, it says the marriage supper of the Lamb, you're invited to that. Jesus at Cana and this little village is bringing all of that to bear for you and for me to see that we are supposed to be people of joy. So here's what I want you to do. Here's where I close. I want you to invite Jesus to your biggest events. I want, right now, for some of you right now, that's not a positive thing. It's something that's hard. It's the disease, disease in your body. It's, 
it's in your marriage right now, I want you to invite him to your wedding. I want, him to, I want you to invite him to your biggest events right now and say, Jesus, I need transformation. You changed the large wine. I need you to change my situation. Edmund Clowney was a, a theologian and a pastor, and listen to his comment about this passage. This is, I, want, I want these words to be the words that you hear before I pray. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. So today we can sit amidst all this world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy. May you sip of the wine of Jesus at Thanksgiving as you go back to hard realities, hard jobs, whatever it might be. May you sip the wine of the coming joy where there'll be no governor on the endorphins. There'll be no limit to what you will experience. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. We move now to a time of confession.